welcome to the season 2 of the in your shoes podcast the podcast aims to get into the shoes of a person like you and me and learn from their career stories and experiences through this conversation we will uncover insights and pearls of wisdom which will hopefully inspire you and expand your thinking we're doing something different this season apart from a full length show we will also expand on topics of interest that emerge during the conversation these will be distributed as special episodes which are short targeted and provide you with the context when you are short on time let us get right into it hey andra it's great to see you and you know meet you on this podcast today thank you so much for giving your time to me and uh, i'm so excited to have you here thank you vivek and it's my pleasure to be here you know um this is my favorite topic and it's also uh, my first podcast so i'm extremely excited about the experience let's do it absolutely so to to listeners out there uh, me and andra connected i think i would say a month ago and we happen to have a common interest around software architecture and i think andra thank you so much for taking this up and also being excited to talk about software architecture um i was so enthusiastically interested to in listening to you when we last met and the type of inputs that you have the opinions and ideas that you have on this topic i think we should obviously go into details in the podcast today but for everyone else who is curious why we are talking about software architecture i think um, we will come to that topic in a moment and i want to first start by you know asking you to briefly introduce yourself like who are you where are you coming from what's your story thank you so so first of all uh my name is uh andrei krajček totally unpronounceable so i go by ondra and actually i prefer it even 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 uh um my customers are calling me ondra so so i i uh, appreciate i appreciate that um uh i i was growing up uh, in the generation where we were actually doing stuff with computers not just playing computer games and i'm sure you remember those times yourself like uh, yeah the good old good times, times we were still you know trying to write some code and 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 we were kind of curious about how how that how that stuff really works what it does the games were not that that compelling so so we still had this uh, i would say strong motivation to do something else besides just 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 code and code playing um and uh, i i really you know i i actually i was growing up uh with the ambition to be a lawyer like my father and i i think it was like fifth grade when i really realized that that i i, I want to do stuff with uh, with computers and i completely switched uh switched uh, uh my i would say ambition my focus and um and uh i was also lucky because uh, back then um uh in the 90s in here in the Czech republic um one of the one of the best universities here in the country called masaryk university in brno established a completely new uh department or what we call faculty uh, completely focused on computer science 
and that's 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 where I started in the 1999, and those were really like a very uh, wild times, uh, punk times, if you will, because I, I was I was lucky again, and I I was able to be a student, an employee, and a teacher at that uh, at that uh, faculty at that at that university back then. And uh, and I really really uh, appreciated appreciated that opportunity. And I stayed there until like 2007. I did some really interesting projects. Finished my masters, not finished my PhD, uh, and I I still you know hold this regret that with the with the, with the ambition to finish it one day. And and then I switched uh, uh, left academia and and uh, and went to business. And joined a company called Ysoft, a Czech company, a startup which which grew to to be a global company operating worldwide these days. And I, I've been with Ysoft uh, since then, in technical positions. And and then I later I transitioned temporarily. I took a temporary detour to business, uh, working with our US team. Um, and uh, you know here I am, working with Fortune 500 customers. Uh, I have uh, driven our technology, um, uh, working with, with with our teams to to deliver our products and services, working directly with customers uh, on the, on the largest implementations. Somehow, you know, between the technology, product, and and business, that's that's where I ideally find find myself. Fantastic! It's such an interesting journey that you had, and uh, you mentioned about. Uh, when you were growing up, I think you mentioned that you you had this plan to become a lawyer. If I got it yes. right, okay. How how did like like were you always interested in becoming a lawyer, or it was coming from your family? What was the story around oh, that? It was coming from my family, and but but I think that what I really liked, and and that's something I like about about uh, computer science and, and, and software engineering too. It, it actually requires a lot of, uh, I would say, logic, and it's driven by principles. And it's, uh, it's, uh, it's based on, uh, uh, on, let's say, like solid, profound structures. It's not, it's not a wild ride in, in a good way. Yeah. It, it is, of course, yeah. I, I'm, I think that, you know, we are, all enjoying it very much, but it is it requires uh, uh, structured system thinking, and that that's what I really really liked, and that that's why. And Andre, you mentioned about I think in our private conversation that you have been also teaching uh, or in a teaching position, and I think that's where we connected around the topic of software architecture. How was that experience for yourself? Well, um, yeah. That's that's why I said I was lucky when I when I joined the uh, the university because I I was not only a student but I also had the opportunity to to work there which was also interesting very interesting but 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 also to teach well back then it worked in the way that students like you know starting second third grade we were able to to become tutors so we were able to teach like seminars you know you have these lectures the courses and then there are some accompanying seminars so that's that's uh, that's uh, where i started but a li little bit later i also had a few of a uh, few courses on my own i think that you know if i remember correctly i was probably the first person 
in Bernard teaching about about Microsoft.net and C# -sharp programming language and 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 the the fundamentals be behind the the common language runtime. Uh, but I was you know teaching many things like like functional programming and uh, an object oriented uh, uh, programming and um, and I, I I found this this passion for for teaching. I just I just love that. Um, I think that the reason is that it's just uh, it's it, it's a great experience first and foremost to see that that you know you can actually have this meaningful exchange with people like you know they're listening to something you say and then they ask questions and and it also helps you to actually learn better because if you want to teach somebody something you really really need to know it very very well and and I guarantee and that's what I actually love about teaching the most is that students they usually come up with questions I would never come up with myself. So it's it it it, it gives you perspectives and it gives you uh, things to consider um, and things to to, to learn. Um, it's 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 also very challenging, but in a good way. So for me, it's like uh, if I really have to learn something, I prefer to teach it. Not that I just you know I I'm I'm not that person who is like two lessons in you know. Uh, uh, two lessons uh, um, uh, ahead of the students. That, that's not what I mean. But but still, like if I'm if I'm not uh, sure about something, I, I I want to I want to confirm my understanding of something. I want to share something. Teaching is a great way how to do it. Yeah, I think you said it in a right way. I think um, it also kind of aligns with uh, the great Richard Feynman shared, right? If you really want to understand things deeply, you need to teach it. And uh, I think for me, a software practitioner, especially the topic that we're going to talk about today, I think the best professionals or people practicing software architecture are also people I know who have been phenomenal teachers. They really, either they teach you by telling you things or they teach you by showing you things or you know directing you to things. And I totally agree. I think this experience of yours, I'm obviously super interested to go deep into that on you know, how and what perspectives did it bring for you. But I'm so happy that you had that experience of going through the process of teaching uh, at an early stage in your career. Do you, like, what do you miss about uh, teaching software architecture or in general computer science that you cannot do at the moment? You know, I, what, what I really miss, uh, well, I would say the only thing I miss is, is, is focus because I don't have as much time to, to work on that as I would love to. Uh, I have this, uh, I have this, uh, let's say, ambition or a goal to to really build uh, a good course uh, dedicated to software architecture, and I'm I, I am teaching it uh, at my alma mater, uh, as we say here. Um, uh, but but I'm I'm having like you know two three lectures a year, which is not nearly not nearly enough. It's a good start. I I I. Uh, I extremely appreciate it. I'm really grateful to the people who um, who are 
working with me at, at the university who basically enabled me to have this experience even when I'm working in business and I'm no longer in academia. But I, I, I'm also I'm also sure that that we have a good cooperation and you know they are bringing their side of the story and I'm bringing mine and it, I can also share some experience from from the from the trenches if you will and it's a, it's it's a great cooperation. So uh, there are really visionary people um, at the university who who understand the value of of, of working with companies this way, um, having this mutual respect. Um, that's that's something which we really had to build the the mutual respect because most people in business they don't really understand academia well enough so that they can be uh, let's say good university lecturers even even when we are talking about guest lectures and at the same time many people in academia they don't understand business and so there is this communication wall which is really difficult to overcome. And I, I was lucky that I, I found people who, who just didn't have that. So there is one particular person which I wanted to mention here, and I hope you don't mind that, uh, uh, a lady uh, uh, called Barabinova at, at, the, at the Masaryk University, who is, who is a great partner in crime, uh, uh, working with me uh, and, 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 and enabling me to teach uh, the way how I teach. And I really appreciate that. So thank you, Barab. Absolutely. It's so good to hear. I think this concept of mutual respect, and I'm glad that you raised this up because for me, I think you're in an interesting position having come from academia and then into uh, the industry, into the business field. I'm quite curious to learn what are the things that you feel you gained to perhaps that shaped your perspective about doing business, about doing being in the software business, some things that you picked up from academia that you feel really opened your eyes or brought new perspective in, in your time today with running a software business? Well, I would say the first and foremost, I, and you already mentioned the, the, the teaching approach, because for me, it's not only about uh, passion for teaching, but I also apply this structure or this this model on uh, on the on uh, on software architecture itself and I'm, I'm i think that we will get to that a little bit later and uh, it also gave me um the the understanding of how, how important it is to understand the, the foundations the historical context for example just to go a little bit beyond the obvious uh, there's not there there is there's there isn't always the time to, to do that right in business you know we are driven by by customer needs and deadlines and uh, and the, the market pushes and and disruptions so so uh, it's it's extremely difficult to go a little bit beyond the obvious but that's that's what what i i, I got from the academia that that it is even that actually makes it even more important to do that and uh, i would say way of thinking People very often wonder. I don't know about uh, about uh, about, uh, for example, Western Europe, or 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 I, I have little bit experience from the U.S. But people often wonder if they really need college, uh, university degree to to do software stuff, be it you know software engineering or I don't know um, um, program uh, pro, 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 program or product management, uh, user experience, for example. 
whether whether that's really um, like necessary. I don't think it's it's necessary for learning the the tools and the technologies and things like that. Um, you can do that yourself, right? You don't need to go to uh, to, to college uh, to do that. But what the what the good universities do is that they give you a way of thinking. They they help you to to realize your potential better because they just show you that there is more than one angle, that there are some foundations which actually do not change and that if you master them and if you understand them, you are future proof. Uh, and that's that's what the uh, that's what the academy, academia gave me. And I, I'm, I'm really grateful for that. Yeah, I think this is super profound because the point about forming the way of thinking is such an important part as we progress through you know modern times with new technologies coming in every single day new frameworks new tools new languages i think sometimes uh in the race of you know picking up these technologies uh we did not get opportunity to really reflect on how a certain technology or tool is shaping our thinking and i think uh, by being able to in your case exposed to a university setup uh, what i hear is that you know you get a kind of way of thinking about things essentially is putting and breaking down technology in its most simplest means and then using that to really build up and understand anything. So I I completely understand and rally with what you said. And I think what we are trying to also get to, obviously in the modern times is figure out a balance between how to create the time and opportunity for people who are getting into industry to really take the time and build that th way of thinking, as you say, whether they have access to good universities or not in any way possible, uh, which also means listening to great podcasts, great you know uh, conversations with people who have been in there. And I think that is, that is also something which I'm quite interested in through this exercise today with you is if you are able to open the minds of people who are listening to this conversation today and for people who are either practicing software architecture or really thinking about this particular you know discipline or role or practice in a different way so i'm glad that you know you centered our conversation today on foundation the historical context which you just shared and also the need to shape the way we think about things and i'm hoping with this session with this conversation today we will be able to contribute towards that yeah and you know same here i think that's a that's a great uh, that's a great ambition so let's 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 uh, let's give it a try absolutely i think the to get started the foundation of everything is to be able to really define what we are going to talk about so andra for you if we have to put together a definition of software architecture what comes to your mind how do you express what is a software architecture to someone who may not have that understanding or view of this and and you know that this is a trick question in a good Absolutely. way right? 
<laughs> we start with a tricky question. Yeah. Yes, um, and this is what I uh, even when I'm trying to explain this to the students, I'm um, I'm I'm always giving them like a heads up that there is no uh, clear or, or good definition. Um, and um, and I think that the, that there are two which I like. I I I, uh, I learned to like, uh, but they are not ex extremely helpful. But they are still good. The 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 best one I I know is uh, is that software architecture is is whatever gives you the answers to the most expensive questions um, around around software. Um, so it, it it is not a structured definition. Like it does not give you a, like a structure. Architecture is this 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 and that, but but it's it, it's actually even better because it tells you what 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 it does. So you can it it actually gives you some guidance about about what 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 good architecture is because good architecture means that it gives you it it, it gives you the the answers to the to the right questions to the right the questions about what's what's uh, what's uh, expensive. That, and that's that's the that's the tricky word because expensive is not about here in this context, expensive is not directly about money. We we all know things like you know technical debt and 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 uh, and uh, and how how dangerous it is. But and this is this is this goes even further because the price we pay is is the energy, the focus, focus first and foremost. Um, and uh, and if we if we uh, fail to to have the right answers or reasonably right answers uh, that means that we will have to pay a lot of uh, a lot of um, energy and, and focus and sacrifice a lot of energy and focus in the future uh, fixing fixing stuff so so architecture is just here to help us it's it's a discipline that that should help us to i would say make somehow reasonable Contextually, the best choices we are we are able at, at a given point in time. Nothing is future proof and nothing is perfect, uh, but it, it doesn't have to be perfect. It, it 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 needs to be good enough. Yeah, I think there's so much, so many valuable things you kind of packaged in that definition, uh, and we can unpack that. Uh, I think one at a time. I think the idea about expensive questions. I think this is fascinating. Um, for me, the other part, which is quite interesting that you said was around not just the best of the best choices, but good enough. I think that's also a very powerful uh, phrase that actually we can actually talk a lot more about what, what do we mean by good enough? And I think my favorite was the choices that are made at a given point in time, which is nothing is permanent. And this is such an important part because a lot of times when we talk about software architecture, maybe in industry, in, in different fact, different systems and different scenarios, I think there is this understanding that architecture is forever. Architecture is permanent. Um, architecture is like written on stone. And I think uh, we should basically spend some time on these three facets of it. One on expensive questions and what is that expensive question as you said and second part would be what's good enough and the third would be 
at a given point in time. So from for your perspective, Andra, how do you see how do you see about defining these expensive question and you know what comes to your mind when you look when you look at your experience addressing these expensive question the bad news is that it comes a lot with uh, experience or I, sh- I should rather say with uh, practice yeah. so I- i'm sure that that many people just just didn't want to hear this because <laughs> that's that's the bad news you, you need to practice um uh, a lot um unfortunately um and I'm sure we all do. Um, but there are some there are some hints which uh, which you can find uh, here and there, and then which which work uh, very well. And you know, and but before I mention some of them, I just want to say, uh, please understand that I learned these things the hard way. So, I'm, I'm whatever I'm talking about today, you know, I'm just sharing my mistakes. Okay, um, <laughs> I'm, I I. Uh, I just they didn't uh, didn't uh, find these things uh, miraculously. They didn't fall from the sky in front of me. I I, I I learned them, I learned them by by doing and and by making mistakes myself. Um, so the first thing is um, I I really appreciate these uh, what I call A B questions, uh, and uh, you know you, you do you do meet them every single day. When 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 building software stuff like what shall we do this or that, and uh, uh, I think that uh, there is a trick. There's always a trick because because what I think about these questions is that if you hit a situation A or B situation, uh, you're you're most likely falling into the into this trap that that both choices are equally wrong. You just don't know it yet, <laughs> and I've been there. I've been there myself many, many times. Mm. So, so the the good approach I like um, uh, is uh, if I end end up in a a b situation, I I think that the right way the or the, the the right way how to address it, or at least the best way how to address it, is to take a step back and try to prevent the question from from uh, from uh, uh, being asked. And rather than you know going for A to B, how can I even prevent myself from having to make the choice? How can I enable uh, the customers or or the 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 operation people, people who are who are actually running the solution, maintaining the solution? How can I enable them to make the choice uh, so so that I, I I make the software a little bit more flexible, a little bit more scalable? And that does not mean that 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 I will grow. Uh, the software from you know twenty configuration options to twenty thousand. That's not what this is about. Uh, but uh, uh, that that wouldn't help anyone. Uh, but but very often you can you can uh, prevent uh, uh, prevent uh, a costly mistake just give, by giving yourself some maneuvering space. Like you know instead of asking uh, yourself you know do I have to go with Mongo or should I use uh, CouchDB or or something completely different, then then you can just by uh, by saying, okay, well, you know what? Uh, what if I I can use anything and everything as long as it uh, as it is just following some principles? Like it's a data store, right? So why should I care about what is the backend? Maybe maybe I can design the system in a way that 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 uh, that there are like fifty different choices, not just two or one or or, or five, fifty different choices, and then I can. 
I can enable those people who are in the field designing and delivering the solutions to the customers uh, uh, to to make the right call under under the circumstances. There there is a very nice principle in Lean which which addresses this. The, the principle is called def, to, to defer commitments, and so and uh, that this really helps. Uh, this really helps to frame. Uh, uh, which questions should be answered and which questions should not? Um, I would say that it's also um, it's also indicated by your stakeholders. So the most expensive questions are usually not technical. Actually, it, it's it, it was one of the biggest surprises in my career was when I found out that uh, the the most important questions are not technical. Uh, the most important questions are about what are the real uh, needs of of the of the customers and of the stakeholders. Uh, what is actually hidden behind what what they say? Uh, what uh, we, what is uh, what is the priority? Which which needs are more important than others? And and uh, are are those going to stay? Are they temporary or are they somehow permanent? Uh, is this a one time thing they're asking for and they they will not needed one year down the road because they will completely change their their for example their business model or their way of working and and, and I'm just building on temporary stuff or is this something which will which which will stay those are tricky questions and uh, and uh, here what what really helps is you know let's have an honest conversation with with the with the people um, and uh, if you explain why do you need to understand the answers and and if if and when you explain that this is not about like a written contract that that you are not going to hold them accountable for for changing their mind in the future they will usually give you uh honest answers they will they will open up they just you know nothing is said in stone and i think that people are often very often reluctant to just express uh the 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 foundations the the, the reasons uh, the driving forces because they are afraid that they they will be held accountable for them in in the future and they are not always in control of of of, of everything mm, that's actually a really interesting way of you know explaining that i what i get from you andre i think especially about expensive questions i think you're you're thinking in terms of the idea about lean decision making, which is, are we even in a state to make a decision between A and B and does it even matter? I think this is a very powerful thought process because sometimes we overlook that question because we are in a decision making spree. And I think sometimes the best decisions is not making that decision, which is also a decision in some ways, but you're not deciding between A and B, but really questioning why even we have to make that decision um, and I think you said something very interesting there is to be able to allow the space to make that decision at a different level or at a different stage whether it's operational or I call it people who are closer to the problem um, Yeah. say a little bit more about that like by not being able to make a decision here between A or B and questioning 
whether we need to really make a decision you're creating that space and often the space allows other people to step in who may be perhaps closer to the problem or make a call which perhaps uh would be the right decision at that point in time how does that resonate with you and what is your thinking about that well you know from my experience it's all about customer intimacy mm. um and uh, you know as much as uh, as as you uh, you can try you can only do you can only do so much so uh i i always uh, stood somewhere you know between the customers and and the internal teams uh engineering teams and i i was always more on the let's say technical side but i was able and i really enjoyed having this close relationship with with uh with uh, many customers but but not nearly enough so one way how to address this for me is you know i i leave as many answers <laughs> to the people who are much more intimate with the customers the people in uh, uh you know sometimes those are business analysts you know m- different companies are using different titles and different uh, structures but it's always about you know you you listen to to the customer you understand what they need and you fit your service or your product or or both to to what they are doing and uh, by not making some of those choices i was talking about you're actually empowering them you are enabling creativity you're making their job more fun uh, so it's not just about flexibility of the solution itself it's also about uh, uh about uh taking advantage of this vast customer intimacy that your organization has already in with different people and also giving them space so that they can enjoy their work a little bit more how do you see andra i would not call it criticism but also some of the things that could go wrong here is when we are delaying decisions potentially it can also lead to technical debt it can lead to as you, you give an example of you know from moving from 10 lines of configuration to 100 lines of configuration how do you counter that when delaying decisions uh and not making a bloated software bloated product which is trying to trying to prevent making a lot of decisions by offloading it maybe through a configuration well this brings me to uh to the concept of uh replaceability which is something uh i find really intriguing but but let's let's take a step back um i think that uh, uh the the right way is not maybe isn't it's it's not to say that we are delaying or deferring decisions we are deferring commitments so i just you know i i'm fine and that's probably better way how to how to put this i'm fine with making um decisions you know every single day and 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 most people are right but it's not about the decisions it's it's more about commitments it's about the 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 small and big lock-ins we are suffering from um uh, um on on daily basis so so i think that the first thing is um uh, by making a choice how far am i committing 
how far to the future, how far uh, to to do, let's say, to the foundations of what I do. How far am I committing ourselves uh, into something specific, something which is really difficult to change? Um, that that's that's what I see. Uh, that's what I see there, and that that brings me to replaceability. It's not about configuration. Um, we've seen, I don't know, like ten-ish years ago, that was that uh, uh, convention over configuration uh, pattern or, or 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 approach, which 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 gained popularity exactly for this reason, because we solved flexibility or we addressed flexibility by introducing configuration options, and then you know we had thousands and thousands of configuration options, which also makes uh, quality assurance much more fun, right? Because then <laughs> you have so so many combinations which you need to test yeah. uh, on all levels. You know, just just try to just try to write a unit test on something which has like 100 different inputs. Uh, that, that's, it's so much fun. Um, and not all of them are are obvious. Uh, uh, there are lots of hidden, hidden things which are done by configuration, not by not by method parameters or whatever. So, um, so I think that replaceability, something which comes from Tom Gilp. Uh, Tom uh, is actually the author of my second, uh, um, I would say second uh, favorite definition of architecture, which is a little bit more structured, but I like it. He says that architecture is a servant of high priority stakeholder needs. Um, is as small as possible, uh, and as simple as possible, but not simpler, and is replaceable. And usually, you know, when I'm talking to uh, talking to students about this, they're usually completely, uh, you know, confused. How can architecture be replaceable? That's that that's uh, that doesn't work that way. Like, and this is this is this is where the the analogy with with uh, the architecture of buildings completely fails, right? Because the the original concept of, of software architecture, you know, and design patterns and these things, it, it comes from uh, buildings. It comes from mm. construction. And there are a lot. There's there's a lot of good analogy here, but but this is where it fails because software is still intangible. It's dynamic. It's fluid. It's not difficult to change. I'm usually comparing this when I'm, you know, if you if you uh, if you uh, could see my lecture notes, you would see a picture of a pyramid there, pyramids mm. in Giza. And I'm saying, okay, so so this is a, this this is an architecture, right? The the problem is that it's not it's not the same like software because this one is is not replaceable, and that's a good way because it, it's there for thousands of years, and that's a good thing. Yeah, because we can, we can learn a little bit about our past, but with software it doesn't work that way. We can change something which is not tangible quite easily. So why why wouldn't we? And that's what Tom is suggesting. I I think if if the change is so easy, why don't we design for it? So you you ask me about how to mitigate the 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 danger or the risk of of too much flexibility, and I'm saying okay, it's not uh, let's not make everything configurable. Let's just change it, and let's rather focus on 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 uh, making that change as easy as as cheap cheap in a good way as uh, as possible that's what this is about mm, that's a really powerful way of putting it 
and i think the idea that designing the system in such a way that making change easy and simple and instead of thinking about deferring decision you're deferring commitment and you're not approaching it purely from a point of configuration you're also thinking about concepts around replaceability i think this is a really powerful way to put this all together let us come back to the the last two parts of your definition one was around good enough architecture like not the best often you will encounter maybe customers or stakeholders will say i need the best architecture uh, or can you design the best architecture and this concept about good enough architecture and the other point is about at that point in time how do you see these two parts together especially about uh the the comparison between making a best architecture choices with versus good enough and the time element of that okay well um the the simple answer to this is that uh this actually shows how important it is to make things replaceable because that's that's the that's the short answer the 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 slightly the slightly longer answer is that when i was 20 i i just enjoyed building complex things <laughs> I, i i loved that yeah you know, just you know no not no level of complexity was 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 good enough for me i just wanted things to be <laughs> com- complicated um why is that why did you love doing that i don't know i think that it's just you know it's it's because you have so many options right you can build with with that this is what i like about software you can do anything yeah you can do an app which works for one user and then you can just it's like magic and then you can scale it up to a million hmm and then you know every day you can you can go to to sleep with the with the thought that there are that somewhere out there there are millions of people using something which which you created hmm. and in my mind that used to be connected with uh, complexity well then i realized that and then when i hit 30 i i realized that i actually like building simple things because when i'm going to bed i also want to sleep uh, <laughs> i don't want to i don't want to stare into you know the the ceiling thinking about what if something goes wrong what if it fails you know it's uh 1 million disappointments is is more than i can bear so um i realized that that uh, i also realized that building things uh in a simple way and then creating th- simple things is actually much more difficult mm. and and it is like infinitely more difficult uh um and uh, i love challenge so that, that that's why i i i think that it was also the one of the drivers why i i i went from complexity to simplicity uh i i i i i want i found it much more challenging and you know there are many people saying this right remember steve jobs when when he was talking about apple and and their products like you know the the, the hardest question is is to to decide what not to do or out of i think that one of the most popular quotes uh, about software um and 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 it in general comes from antoine de saint exupery the author of little prince 
who said that you know the perfection is achieved not when there is nothing to add but when there is nothing to remove and this is this is it so that's the simplicity uh, and uh, and uh, i would say simplicity also means that you focus on your business logic your business value and then you can turn everything into commodity as the first step then you may realize and that that gives you a lot of uh, uh lot of a uh, lot of grounds because uh, there's a lot of commodity available these days uh infrastructure is a commodity platforms are commodity uh even advanced uh, technologies like you know machine learning is is a commodity these days uh security to some extent is also a commodity so uh so there are things to to reuse so turn everything which which can be turned into a commodity uh, and and focus on on the business logic and then you know at some point you can find that uh, by by taking some of those commodities and doing them yourself you can gain a competitive advantage so you can just you know bring them over from the commodity world to to the to the competitive advantage world but that needs to be deliberate decision driven by driven by business driven by uh what customers are asking for it, it doesn't it can't be an upfront admiration for uh for something or, or upfront uh, ambition that that we can do it better because i'm sure that many people can do it better than than uh the mainstream because mainstream is is logically uh, a lot about compromises but we don't have time for it yeah so to get it right, uh, what you're saying is thinking about, again, a definition. And we have spent a lot of time on definition, but I think it's good to spend some time on there. As you said, focusing on foundation and historical context is quite important. Uh, the good enough architecture and a given point in time, if you start approaching things around being replaceable, you can think about building an architecture that just works but it's designed to allow replaceability. And when I say replaceability, you don't have to address all the concerns. Think about where you can take advantage of a commodity. And when you see a really a differentiating factor of bringing or addressing that complexity by dealing with that commodity yourself instead of using a commodity, that would be a very deliberate decision coming from from the business and customer intimacy. Yes, I, I would say so. I mean, you can you can look at uh, uh, you can look at uh, technical uh, many technical choices, and you can say, okay, so how can I, if if I'm going to do something, how can I enable myself to change it later easily? That that is the question I'm asking myself a lot. And, uh, and then you ask yourself, okay, what I'm going to change it for? And I, and, and the, the right way how to address this is, I don't know. And I don't have to know, and I, I must not know, actually. I know that change will come, but I can't uh, trouble myself with what I'm going to change it for, because the thing I'm going to change it for doesn't have to even exist these days. Now, many people are trying to, to think about specific things that will happen in the future 
and I, I've been there myself. And you know, I was like, okay, so we will do, we will use this this thing here, and then you know, in five years down the road, we will change it for that, and uh, and it will be it will be great. And uh, that's not how it works, uh, really. Design for ch design things for change, not for specific changes in the future if that makes sense mm, design for change but not a specific change i think we can just use that as a tagline for this podcast <laughs> <laughs> okay okay that sounds that sounds good yeah i'm just taking a note of that design for a change and not a specific change that's a very powerful line um are you sure you have not done this before <laughs> you're no. good at it <laughs> no 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 I'm, I'm i'm just used to uh to think out loud. Um, yeah, I just wanted to add one thing, you know, for, for the technical uh, uh, geniuses out there. You know, this all sounds very philosophical, but believe me, you know, it's not. If you look at, at, at what we are doing today, like uh, in, the, in the technology field, if you look at uh, uh, what, what uh, DevOps is about, if you, look at about, if you look at continuous integration, continuous delivery, if you look at... Uh, Things like uh, you know containerization and serverless architectures. Actually, all these things have one thing in common: they allow you and they even kind of push you to design for change. That's what that's what they are really about. So it's not that you know Docker is cool, so we are all using Docker uh, Docker containers for everything, or that you know serverless is is so easy to to create because you don't have to write uh, so much boilerplate. You know, that all those things are true. You know? But but the, the the fun part is that uh, they are actually going in the direction to to uh, to prevent commitments. So for example, you know, I, I I like serverless not because it allows me to you know to write short functions which do stuff, but serverless architectures for me are about decoupling dispatch from the business logic. I can write my business logic and I don't have to make any commitments about endpoints and communication protocols and uh, application servers and, and uh, application containers. There's no such thing. So it's actually, and that's what, that's, that's, the, that's the most important benefit for me, for example, is that if I don't want to concern myself about that stuff and I don't want to think about, okay, it's scalable today, what, how can I make it scalable tomorrow? It actually tells me, no, you don't have to care. You know, and if tomorrow I realize that you know Lambda is not scalable enough for me, or or Azure Functions are not scalable enough for me, I can just take if if designed properly, I can just take the whole stuff and I can wrap it up in microservices or something completely different. And this is what replaceability is. And all these tools and technologies uh, are actually helping me to do it. Right. Awesome. I really like how you kind of connected also the trends, also the evolving um, ideas around designing for change, designing for replaceability in mind. With that, I think we can now move on. So we talked about what is software architecture. We talked about the three interesting parts of the definition, answering to technical, answering to expensive questions, having a good enough decision, and at a particular point in time. And with that, I want to focus our conversation to like who, who practices software architecture and 
I think maybe we take a step back, as you said. Like we talked about definition, but I have often seen, and I think you also seen, like today we have the roles called software architect, and there are topics and books about software architecture. So, what is your opinion about like practicing software architecture? Is it a role? Is it a just a competency, or it's something else? So I think that we can uh, uh, we can uh, uh, approach this uh, from the uh, you know starting with the easy easy enough answer. So I think that we can easily agree that it's not a job title, even though it is in many many teams, many companies. I don't think that uh, that architect is a job title. I've been there myself. I uh, I. Uh, I had architects in in uh, in my teams uh, in the past, uh, but I just I just believe that it's so misleading to call somebody, uh, I mean by by job title to call somebody an architect, that I think it's a bad it's a bad practice. The reason is very simple. If you call somebody an architect, you kind of and that's the answer to your question. You kind of indicate that they are the ones doing the architecture, and that's not true. We all do. Even your customers are influencing the architecture, all the developers, all the engineers, all the stakeholders, we all do architecture. It's, it's like security you know, of your apartment. Who does security of your apartment? Is it the, the, the person, the developer, the company who built the apartment? Is it you? Is it, is it everyone? If I don't lock the door of my apartment and somebody robs me because I left the door open, who did the, the security of that? No, it was me, and I'm the user. So, an architecture is the same. We all do software architecture, and I, I think it's it's dangerously misleading to call somebody an architect. I mean, in in a job title. So that's that's one thing. And then you you asked about roles and and competencies. I think that architecture or or software architect is is a competency. Uh, it requires. A way of thinking. It requires perspective. It requires understanding of uh, lots of things. It requires some level of customer intimacy. We already talked about, and uh, and it requires, at least in my humble opinion, it requires one thing, and it's teaching. When I'm explaining this, uh, I usually say, if there is one thing, software architect should be, it's it's not the best developer in the group or the best. I don't know designer in the group it's uh, it's the, it's it's teacher it's a teacher um and i'm i'm also using the the good teacher bad teacher analogy which comes from my elementary school years uh, uh you know when we had i liked most of my teachers and uh, but i only liked them when they were not giving the, the marks when they were not evaluating us uh, and they had to <laughs> and they had to do that you know, from time to time, right? It, it's just yeah. it's it's just a form of feedback. Um, feedback is important, by the way, here because evaluation in this context is not about you know just saying you're not you're not talented or you are not able to do this. It's just about feedback. Honest, direct, respectful feedback with underscore under honest. And, and and direct um, and respectful. So, teacher, eighty percent 
you help, you support, you teach, you explain, you guide, you uh, you do stuff with people. You uh, you help them to understand the the impact of what they are discussing, of the choices they they need to make. Maybe uh, you are even trying to prevent them from committing to things they don't have to commit to. You know, different commitments. Uh, you already discussed that. And 20% of the time, you are just the what I call like quote unquote bad teacher. You're there to evaluate. You're not evaluating people. No, you're not evaluating their work. You evaluate your system, your product. This ideally is a data driven discipline, data driven exercise. You know, you look at scalability, you look at security, you look at uh, uh, operation, uh, operational costs, operational effort. All those things exist because uh, your stakeholders see them as important. Well, if no one cares about running costs, then well, okay, they are not important. But I dare say that that you know, in vast majority of situations, you do care about running costs. It doesn't mean that you have to pay them. In some cases, customers pay them. In some cases, you do pay them because you're running in the cloud and you're providing whatever you're providing as a service. But uh, but but even if you're not paying them or your company is not paying them, you still have to take care of them. And, and that's the evaluation. That's the bad feature that you're basically making a strict hard assessment. Is it good enough or not? We have measured stuff. And what 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 do the numbers tell us? Are they improving? Are they declining? Are they good enough? Are they more than good enough? Uh, what does it tell us about uh, about what we need to change? change what is the what is the next big big thing we need to look at and that's what the architecture should do as a, as a as part of the teaching job right so if i got it right i think you look at software architecture as a competency and i think mm -hmm. um, let's not think about it as a role or so not even role but basically a title and i totally agree with that and think i have been in my own career journey uh, in the position when I was called an architect and I never understood that role and that job of what I have to do. And I think I felt more about empowering people and really helping them think about uh, the process that they take to make a decision by themselves and really helping them opening their eyes to it so I, I like the idea about education and about being a teacher because it's, it's so much more about being in a position where you can help people to make a right decision or a good enough decision uh, by providing them, but basically asking the right questions. And I, I really like the analogy around that instead of also just giving them answers to something. And... What I also liked in your response was this analogy about good and bad teachers. So what I hear from you is uh, someone who is uh, exercising the competency of software architecture has to play the role of a good and bad teacher. And bad teacher in a sense is all about measuring, tracking, looking for what worked, what did not work, and evaluation, but you're not evaluating people, you're evaluating systems, you're evaluating 
metrics like from a from a data point of view looking at how the system behaves and i think that resonates from a point of like when we when we call someone who is doing software architecture we never i would say in my experience we have i haven't seen people really thinking about in terms of the good and bad teacher methodology it's more about giving directions to people helping them unblock certain things and move on but i really like how you also talked about measuring what you helped create how how has been your experience around you know leveraging software architecture as a competency in order to evaluate your systems so what sort of evaluation you look at well data driven um simply put it needs to be data driven and i think that your best friend here are uh the the people who represent the customers or the stakeholders uh so the the metrics the data i'm looking at uh uh are the data which articulate the value the 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 value as in value proposition of whatever you are creating so those can be data which relate to how expensive it is to run the system for one user or 10 users or 1000 users and it's measurable right uh it's measurable on premise it's measurable in the cloud it's measurable on the edge uh, uh you just run it and you measure it at, in in the worst case uh um things like uh, uh latency uh round trip times which which actually directly impact user experience you know, authentication takes 30 seconds or authentication takes 1 second or authentication is instantaneous and then uh and then we can have the conversation about what's what's good enough like uh 2 seconds okay good enough 10 seconds no 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 that's too long i we don't have time to to wait for 10 seconds like if uh, every single authentication i do uh, took 10 seconds i probably would spend like an hour a day just authenticating <laughs> and, and who who wants that you know and and uh, i was really excited when i found out that there are customers out there who actually do care about these details they are they are ready to have these conversations so so the data i'm talking about are really data coming from the customers measuring the 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 customer expectations or i would say indicating the customer expectations and you have you can have meaningful conversations uh, this is what i learned from from uh, uh Tom Gilb and and his teachings is that you can have meaningful conversations with uh, with the the stakeholders and the customers and and you can frame these conversations in in data uh and you can express their expectations using data and then you can measure it um so that's where the data come uh, come from like you know the the problem with data driven approach is that once you adopt the the approach that things can and 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 should be measured to give you inside then the second step usually is for most people that they try to measure everything like how many exceptions are in the log files you know or how many lines are in the log files oh and what is the you know cyclomatic complexity of uh, of of the of 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 all the code and you know how many changes are happening uh uh per sprint and and things like that and 
And then, then the, the next step in this is really to figure out which measurements are more important than others. And the easiest way how to do that is just talk to the talk to your stakeholders, talk to the customers. And this is this is where architect as a as a competency comes into play because one of uh, the most important components of that competency is that you can be the the counterpart in these meaningful conversations, and that you can you can have that discussion in a meaningful way. And if if anyone in your team can have that discussion, that means that everyone is an architect, and there is nothing wrong about that. Yeah. Totally. I want to now touch upon something that we spent, I would say, some time in our previous conversations, and I really enjoyed that talking about it is around patterns. Uh, often people who are getting started, they pick up a particular book or, you know, style by looking at patterns, by looking at, oh, this is uh, how I can solve something. And I've obviously enjoyed our conversation about it. And I would love to hear also you from now and share with all the listeners of the podcast is how has been your thinking about architecture patterns and how it's being used at the moment in industry? Okay. Um, I think that architectural patterns, uh, not to be confused with design patterns, but architectural patterns are extremely dangerous. And you know the 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 reason is that it's extremely difficult to capture the the important context they exist in. And uh, I would say almost like I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's extremely difficult. I wanted to say almost impossible. Um, and I I I've, what I've seen uh, a lot is that people usually fall into two categories. They they don't have the enough experience yet to be able to to apply patterns appropriately that's the first group and no amount of, of books can help them and it's very dangerous for them and kind of it's it's like it feels like betrayal because we are telling people if you do this it will it will be uh, it's the right way it's the right thing to do it's the right way how to do it and how can we know we are not there with them and then there's the second group of people who already have the experience and then they don't need the architectural patterns because they already know how to how to do stuff and how to how to approach stuff so they don't need the patterns when we discussed this before i, I was always a big enemy of architectural patterns and, and, it, and what i one thing which i took from our discussion is that i actually found one way uh, how to look at at, at, at patterns, architectural patterns, uh, uh, which I like. And uh, it's that architectural patterns are contracts with commodity. So we already talked about commodity, right? Like you, you, you isolate everything which is not your, let's say, core business logic driven by stakeholder needs, and you just turn that into commodity. You, you take this from Amazon, you take that from Microsoft, and and there are, there are so many options, but but these things they have to be built to be at least somehow universal, and I think that this is probably for me the only meaningful use for 
or specific patterns that they are kind of expressing how those things should be plugged in to your to your system. Uh, so for 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 using commodity solutions, patterns are probably a, the the only case where I would say, yeah, it's a good guidance. It's it's a good way how to how to say that. Like, and what what actually brought me to this is that uh, when I was discussing, uh, I don't remember how how long ago that happened. Uh, it was a long time ago. Like some of the patterns used in uh, um, in uh, uh, Kubernetes, and I I really like uh, uh, some of the patterns used there. Most notably, you know, Sidecar. That's my favorite. And uh, why? Because it's another way how to actually make things replaceable. That's why. So that's why I like it. And uh, and I I was like, okay, I hate patterns, but I like this one. What does that say about me? Uh, so I had to reconsider, and I realized, you know, I like it because uh, it, it's uh, it's driving replaceability, and it's actually helping me to understand how should I use this commodity, that commodity being a, a service mesh uh, uh, topology or, or or Kubernetes cluster in in general or any kind of orchestration in general. And I find that meaningful. So so in this context, I'm saying, okay, you know, I'm. Uh, I am uh, I'm perfectly fine with working with patterns, but just as a as a building block of uh, of a software application of a software architecture, I don't think it's a good uh, good way how to see how to do that, and I think it's dangerous. I, I I'm I'm a big fan of of uh, uh, finding and following principles, uh, and I you know that's one of the taglines in my course notes is is principles over over patterns. Yeah, I I completely resonate with that, and I think the line round, pat some patterns like the one that you talked about from the Kubernetes side, drive replaceability. Hence, it makes that particular concern, which is around discoverability or you know just service mesh as a commodity. Um, I think that's it. Completely resonates to the point. Personally, personally, I also see. I think there's a value around thinking about patterns, and but I think I totally see people falling into these buckets. As we're closing in to our last section, I want to bring to attention from your side, for people listening to this podcast, what are the things that you want to leave them with in terms of advice if they are starting with our soft playing on the competency of architecture, what should they think about? What should they consider? Um, just you know, just judging from the mistakes I've made uh, myself so far, I would say uh, learn how to learn. One of the big mistakes uh, I, 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 um, I made in the past is that I didn't find enough time for uh, learning, and I was not very efficient in it. I never stopped. I can say I never stopped, but I wasn't doing it enough. Um, so focus focus on that. Also, uh, I would say the big elephant in the room these days, no cloud will figure the architecture for you. Uh, you know, I think that you, you, you see that yourself, right? That, that, you know, some people are saying, okay, we have cloud now, so we don't have to worry about architecture. We don't have to worry about security. 
because you know those those smart guys in Microsoft and Amazon and Google and uh, you know Rackspace and, and uh, Digital Ocean they they figured that out for us right we don't have to think about that anymore and and I think that we all know that 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 nothing can be further from from the truth so so no cloud will figure it for us and uh, if you want to be an architect uh, be a teacher like you don't have to be a teacher in a class. You can be a teacher uh, uh, to your friends, you know, and that somehow, uh, some, some, uh, sometime you are teaching them and they are teaching you, and you can you can just build this uh, community of practice in your company and just you know exchanging talks and 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 practical lessons and just do stuff together, learning how to learn and learning how to teach these things, and you know it will come with practice. So so practice is key. Hmm. So if I reiterate, so learn from mistakes, focus on that learning part. And I like that part about no cloud will figure out the architecture. You cannot outsource your architecture to a cloud provider. I like that. And lastly, I think it just resonates how we got started to this conversation is from your experience as a teacher. Uh, I think we have reached the end of this conversation, at least this part of our conversation. Um, I really enjoyed talking to you, Andra. I think I'm actually surprised that you told me that this is the first time you're doing a podcast because you seemed very natural. And I think you had so many gems spread all over this podcast. And I, I thank you so much for coming in the podcast today. And uh, I, I thank you for the opportunity. Uh, it's a, uh it's uh it just feels feels good to to share and and uh, pay at least something forward um and um, and i really enjoyed the time we spent together talking about these things so so thank you very much please subscribe to the podcast in your shoes on the podcast channel including apple podcast spotify overcast pocketcast and others to know more please visit www dot in your shoes dot com that is i n u r shoes dot com